Hello, and welcome back to the Automotive Podcast. For this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about the Ford Mustang, and as I'm sure you've noticed, this will be the first ever two-part series on a car. And the main reason behind this is simply the fact that the Ford Mustang has a very long history, and I wanted to take my time and really go into the details of the car, uh, the development of the car, the politics behind this car, and what created it. Um, And to go into the amount of detail that I thought was necessary, it will be broken up into two parts. This first part will just be covering the first generation of Mustang. There is a lot to this car, and we'll get into all the itty-bitty little details, all the good stuff. The second episode, which will be released a week after this one, will cover the rest of the generations that the Mustang eventually became, and all the details behind uh, this car moving into the modern era. So let's jump right into the first generation of Mustang. The idea of a car that will eventually become the Mustang started as early as 1960. The actual first generation of Mustang would not be released until 1965. So what was going on in those five years between the idea of the Mustang and the actual release of the Mustang? Well, Ford was trying to figure out what car it wanted to create to take advantage of a new market. If you listened to the previous episode on the Corvair, you know what market I'm talking about. It's this market of baby boomers that are just coming into the driving age and they're looking for powerful but cheap and efficient cars. And the Corvair was one of the first cars to take advantage of this market. And the Corvair, in fact, inspired the development of eventually the Mustang. So Ford was taking its time trying to figure out what is the best way to go about developing a car that will be cheap and will appeal to the new youth that can suddenly start driving. The main drive behind this new car is a man named Lee Lacoca, who is all over automotive history. He had his hands in the Ford GT40 project. He would eventually revive the Chrysler Corporation during the 1980s. This guy really was just kind of everywhere and involved in a lot of stuff. And he was really the guy who saw this new market and was really pushing to develop a car to take full advantage of it. And there were a couple different prototypes to fit this market. The first was called the T5. It was a two-seater, mid-mounted engine roadster powered by a V4 engine. Um, It was basically called the Mustang 1, And it wasn't actually directly tied to Lila Coca, um, but it was looking to fill the same sporty, affordable car demand. And that was kind of the very first little taste of of this Mustang. This was early 1960s. And it was just just a little taste of what would eventually become the Mustang. And this prototype 
looked pretty promising. It was lightweight, it had a small design, and it seemed to be really popular among car enthusiasts. But the problem was that Ford did not believe that this car would appeal to the mass public because it was too small. There was only two seats and there was no room for luggage, so Ford was like, yeah, people who like cars might like this car, but people that just want to get to where they're going probably won't like this car. So then they moved on to the Mustang 2, which is a confusing name because eventually there will be a actual Mustang called the Mustang 2, uh, but this was just a prototype um, developed from the first prototype. It was developed into a four-seater, and it was made to be more appealing to the general public instead of just car enthusiasts. There were lots of prototypes during this time. There was one called the XT Bird, which was another two-seater idea, and it was supposed to be a revival of the 1957 Thunderbird. Uh, but again, it was decided that the two-seater would not sell. It was too small of a car. Basically, to summarize this time from 1960 to about 1962, Ford was just kind of drowning in ideas. They kept coming up with prototypes and being like, maybe this will work. And everyone's like, nah, I don't think that'll really work. And they keep trying and they keep like, two-seaters, four-seaters, and they're like, nah, that doesn't seem good. V4s, who uses V4s? And it never really got anywhere. Until 1962, when Lee Lacocca would revamp the project and set forward very clear design requirements. These requirements were as follows. The car needed to have a price tag of right around $2,500. It needed to have a curb weight of 2,500 pounds. It needed to have an overall length of 180 inches. It needed to seat four. It needed a floor shift transmission. And it needed to use the most amount of Falcon components as possible to keep the cost down. And to get a little friendly competition going to develop this car, Lila Coca actually pitted in-house design teams against one another to come up with the best design. He gave each team two weeks to create a full-sized clay model of their ideas. In total, seven models were presented as options after just two weeks, and one clearly jumped out. It was made from white clay, which was done on purpose to make it stand out, and Lee Lacocca described this one as the only one that seemed to be moving. This design would be changed a little bit, but fundamentally, this was going to be the Mustang that was put into production. However, there were still concerns over the success of this new car people were still not convinced that this was the one that was going to sell well. And the biggest problem was that Henry Ford II himself did not like this car. He did not think it was going to be a success. And he basically refused to allow the project to go forward. However, Lee Lacocca didn't really care, and he asked an engineer named Donald Frey to develop this car over an 18-month period. But 
in secret. It was done pretty much without Ford's permission. In fact, in 2004, Frey, who was the engineer who was given this project by Lila Coca, was quoted saying, quote, The whole project was bootlegged. There was no official approval of this thing. We had to do it on a shoestring. To put that in a little bit of perspective, the entire Mustang would be engineered and developed on one-tenth the cost of the 1965 Ford Galaxy. It was an underground project that had basically no funding and no permission, and they kept going with it. Obviously, at some point, Henry Ford II found out about the project. They finished it up, and they were looking to put it into production, and they can't really do that in secret. So they went to Henry Ford, and they're like, hey, we have this car, we know you didn't like it, we kept working on it, it didn't cost us that much, here it is, what do you think? And Henry Ford II was a bit hesitant. Eventually, Ford did give approval for this car to be put into production and be put up for sale. But that approval came with an agreement that if the car was a failure, Donald Frey would lose his job. Which is a little unfair considering Donald really didn't push this project forward. He was told to develop this project. But that was the agreement. So the Mustang was putting Donald Frey's job on the line. One little side note, the name Mustang supposedly comes from a World War II fighter plane, and not the horse. Uh, I've heard this from a couple sources, but I kind of have my doubts. It seems a little strange to me, as Ford has a history of naming their cars in relation to horses. Um, so maybe it was after the World War II fighter plane, uh, but to me the horse makes more sense. Uh, also, other names were considered for this car, including Cougar and T-Bird 2. Um, so I think the world lucked out with Mustang, because that's definitely the best option of those. Another interesting thing is that uh, the name Mustang could be used everywhere except for Germany, because Ford was unwilling to pay for the right to use that name, because at the time, a heavy-duty truck in Germany was also called the Mustang, and Ford was just unwilling to pay some money for the right to use it. Um, so in Germany, Mustangs are called T5s, which is rather boring, but I guess save every little penny you can. To allow for the Mustang to reach a wider audience, the first Mustangs could be purchased with a pretty amazingly wide range of engine options, and they really wanted to allow the customer to customize the car to a pretty deep extent. The idea was for the customer to be able to create a daily driver if that's what they needed, or to create a weekend racer with a lot of oomph if that's what they were looking for. So that was a key component for the Mustang. It was supposed to be customizable to whatever the customer wanted. This included different engine options, but it also included interior colors, additional gauges, sun visors, 
and a bunch of other little optional stuff to allow the customer to really feel like the car is uniquely theirs. It's a practical car, no matter what your age. It's a sports car, for all sports. It's a luxury car. Mustang is as personal as you want to make it. It's bucket seats, all vinyl upholstery, wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, padded instrument panel, full wheel covers are standard. But the long list of options makes Mustang the car designed to be designed by you. The Ford Mustang is finally up for sale. Technically, it was up for sale several months before the 1965 uh, production year. And for this reason, the very first Mustangs are referred to as 1964 and a half models. Uh, these 1964 and a half models did have some small changes compared to the actual 1965 models, so these special cars are kept track of, and there is a difference between these two quote-unquote model years. The original engine lineup for the 1964 and a half Mustangs include a 2.8 liter straight six, which produced 105 horsepower, a 4.3 liter V8, which produced 164 horsepower, and a 289 cubic inch V8 that was good for 210 horsepower. <laughs> Transmission options included a 4-speed or 3-speed manual, or a 3-speed automatic. At the start of the actual 1965 production year, the Mustang was given several changes, and these cars are known as late 65 Mustangs. The engine lineup was changed at this time. The engines available would now include the same straight 6, but it was bored out to 3.3 liters, which allowed it to produce 120 horsepower. The 4.3 liter would be replaced by a new 289 cubic inch V8 that used a two-barrel carb. With that configuration, this engine produced 200 horsepower. Other 289 V8 engines were available with different carb setups, including a four-barrel carburetor, that allowed the engine to push out 225 horsepower and an Autolite four-barrel carburetor that was rated at 271 horsepower. A very small little random fact that I personally found interesting was that the late uh, 65 Mustangs actually had a switch from a DC electrical generator to a new AC alternator which is now what is used in every car ever. So I guess they were, you know, that was a pretty major switch in the automotive industry, and now everyone has alternators, at least for the most part. Now let's finally get back to poor old Donald Frey, who has been sweating about his job this entire time I've been talking about other stuff. Does he keep his job? Well, obviously everybody knows that, yes, the Mustang was an incredible success. It sold incredibly well. And, I mean, it makes sense. It was a powerful car that was surprisingly cheap. It was customizable. If that was my option as a new driver, man, the Mustang would be tempting. 
So let's throw a couple numbers out there. Ford originally planned to sell 100,000 Mustangs in the first year. That was kind of their benchmark number. They're like, if we can get 100,000 cars off our lot and into customers' hands, that's pretty good. Dealers were able to sell 22,000 Ford Mustangs on the first day. That is nuts. Nearly a quarter of their predicted sales happened in the first 24 hours. And sales continued to do extremely well throughout the year. By the end of 1965, over 400,000 Mustangs would be sold, four times the predicted number. Within two years, more than a million Mustangs had been sold. This is unbelievable. The Mustang was an absolute, incredible, instant success. And as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, something that might have really helped this along, really helped increase sales, was the fact that the car was sold for $2,368. If you translate that, uh, taking inflation into account to modern money, that's about $20,000, which is a pretty reasonably priced car. And the price was able to be that low mostly because all of the Mustang, the interior, the chassis, the suspension, was from already existing Ford models. So in reality, the Mustang was not a new car. It was just a new combination of other Ford cars. That's not a dig at it. I mean, it's impressive that they were able to keep the price that low and offer something as customizable and as powerful as the Mustang. Not much would change into 1966 model year, and the Mustang would continue to sell very well. But by 1967, the first major changes were coming to the Mustang. And the general theme for these changes was bigger, because it's an American car, and it's all American car companies can do. The overall length, width, and weight of the car would grow. And this was mostly to allow the use of big block engines. I, for one, have always heard people talk about big block engines and small block engines, but I didn't actually know the difference. Um, So for those that are unaware, like myself, big block engines are V8 pushrod engines. They don't have an overhead cam, but instead use uh, pushrods to open and close the valves. And in order to be a big block, the engine has to have a displacement over 400 cubic inches. If the displacement is any smaller than that, it's a small block V8. Uh, So not anything too technical, just big blocks are bigger than small blocks, which I think makes a lot of sense. So with the ability to put these, well, massive engine in the Mustang, uh, Ford really went for it. Uh, The 289 V8 was placed behind the new 390 cubic inch or 6.4 liter V8 as the top performing engine. Uh, This engine would pump out 335 horsepower. You could also get a new 302 cubic inch V8 uh, that would supply a pretty healthy 210 horsepower, 
and in 1968, for drag racing, customers could get a 428 or 7 liter Cobra Jet V8 that pumped out 335 horsepower. And by the way, this car was street legal. They kind of advertised it as a drag racing package, but you could certainly take this thing on the road. And this trend of just getting bigger continued into 1969. Uh, throughout this time, several different V8s were offered, um, but more importantly, this was the time that the Mach 1 and Boss models were made available. The Mach 1 was a more sporty special edition Mustang that featured slightly different looks, both interior and exterior. Uh, the Boss 302 was built to meet Trans Am racing production requirements, and the Boss 429 would be used to homologate the 7-liter engine to be used in NASCAR. And this would be the high point of ridiculously massive engines in fairly massive Mustangs. Between 1969 and 1970, lots and lots of different engines were offered. Some of these engines were only offered for one year, while others were offered uh, both years. Uh, most of these engines were V8s, with power ranging between 210 horsepower to 375 horsepower in the 7-liter Boss V8. Uh, but two inline-six engines were also available. One was a 3.3-liter inline-six that produced 120 horsepower, and the other was a 4.1-liter inline-six that produced 155 horsepower. In 1971, the Mustang got even bigger. But this, this was where they ran into issues. There were new emission rules being created, and things were beginning to cinch down on these just ridiculously big engines. And besides that, Americans were starting to move away from muscle cars. And the Mustang was now a massive car. Yes, it started as a smaller, cheap, fuel-efficient car, but that was no longer what it was. It now weighed a thousand pounds more than the original 1965 Mustang, and sales would continually drop through 1973, and larger options were disappearing. By 1972, all big block options had been removed, and the biggest engine that was available to any Mustang was a 351 cubic inch V8 that had been introduced in 1969. And that is where we're going to leave the Mustang for this week. It started out small, and like America does, it got really, really big. And that isn't super sustainable. With emissions coming into play, and there will be oil crisis, and general desire for these massive cars would go down, and the Mustang was starting to lose its grip. It was starting to not sell well. So make sure to tune into next week's episode to see if the Mustang would survive this issue. Because, you know, we have absolutely no idea if the Mustang would survive. No idea. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Make sure to tune in next week for the second part. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, the number one way to do that is to leave reviews and follow the podcast on whichever platform you are listening. Also, sharing the podcast with any friends or family that you think would enjoy it is also incredible and means a ton. You are welcome to follow me on social media. My Instagram is automotive.podcast, my Twitter is at automotivepod, and my Facebook is at automotivepodcast. I post car facts and will let you know about upcoming episodes. Other than that, thank you again for listening, and I will see you next week.